Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I think everybody's got certain skills or things that they're really good at or things that they can grow into being really good at that are also things that will be really useful. And I just tend to think that people are happiest when they're able to feel useful and like they're really building something and building something special. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back to this part two of my 300 episode journey return to my friend Adam James. Adam was episode number one guest. He's also episode 117. He's a good friend. And if for whatever reason you missed the previous episode, well, just press pause, go back in your podcast player, and you'll see the episode right before this one. That was part one of Adam James. I'd encourage you to go listen to that one first. Although I think you would get a lot of value if you just listened to this one. So if you're just dipping your toes in and for whatever reason, this subject line caught your attention, well, just keep listening. I hope that you'll find the time, the energy, and the enjoyment out of this episode to dig into some of the other 300 episodes in our catalog of industry leaders, doers, thinkers, founders, and all of the advice I've been able to extract from their very competent brains. And we catalog it all over at mysuncast.com. So if you prefer to look at a website, that's where you'll find all the back catalog episodes. It's where you can also search the episodes. And you can sign up for our newsletter. You can check out all the fancy events that we are engaged in trying to add value to your life and to the industry. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we turn into part two of our conversation with Adam James here on Suncast. You know, I'd like to know, Adam, another ponderous question. What turned out better than you expected? I think basically everything. I knew you were going to say that. I totally knew you were going <laughs> to say that. You're so <laughs> lame. <laughs> basically everything in my life has turned out better than I expected. You know, I was somebody who had depending on when you're looking at, I mean, I, you know, I had a really tough time when I was, when I was younger, I was one of those people who really did not think that things were going to be okay for a really long time. And then I think, you know, even in early parts of my career and in school, I was still really troubled by, by a lack of security, by, by not really feeling very secure in my, in my environment, not feeling very comfortable in my own skin. And even that, that was one of those things that felt like maybe that'll never go away. And it's something that, you know, I think as time has gone on, while there's still things that I feel really worried about, the bigger picture things about kind of where things are going with our, uh, especially with, with climate change, but so many things have just turned out wildly better than I would have expected. And one thing I would just point to is the, it does, it does seem to be that there's some kind of a, a law in place, which I, I know I said it a bunch on the last time I was on Suncast, I've said it a few times even now since we've been talking, but the law being, you know, if you just work really hard and you try to stay focused on how you can help other people, things will just get better. Hmm. You know, things really will just get better. And there's a lot of 
counter evidence to that in the world that I think can get people down, but it still has just held really true in my own experience. Is there a specific moment in time where you look back and the pendulum swung the other way? You might attribute it as a turning point or that success marker where you turned away from perhaps that mindset of lack or the mindset of is that when is this ever going to go well? And, and you turn towards that eternal optimist that I know you to be? Yeah, I, I think there was both a, there's definitely both a moment and it's been then gradual since then, but I think it's about just a question of orientation. You know, there's somebody who I heard say once that for pilots, attitude means their angle of approach. That's what it means in kind of aeronautical terms. I don't even know if that's true, but I heard somebody say, say that once. <laughs> and I really, I, I like that because I think that's kind of been how I've felt about attitude since I heard that is it's about what is your angle of approach on problems and on the world and towards yourself. And I think I, I was somebody who my angle of approach was wrong for a really long time or, or it was just one that didn't really work. And it was one that was heavily focused on myself. You know, how can I get what I think I need in order to be okay? And I think the slow reorientation around the idea of how can I use what I have got to be as useful as possible, you know? And, and I think that the, the, the more I've gotten into that mindset, the happier I have been for sure. And the more I actually feel a sense of purpose about what I'm doing, because I think everybody's got certain skills or things that they're really good at or things that they can grow into being really good at that are also things that will be really useful. And I just tend to think that people are happiest when they're able to feel useful and like they're really building something and building something special. And so I think that that's the main, the main thing has been that getting that kind of reorientation towards what can I, what can we really do to be as useful as possible rather than how can I get mine? Well, let's come back to what it is that you are doing. For those who are trying to figure out their role, their fit, and they hear chief of staff. I remember the first time I heard chief of staff, I, I was really unsure what the heck that means. I'm, I'm not sure I could adequately describe it now. Perhaps you can't either, but I'd love to know. Tell me more about the role of chief of staff, at least within the organization you're in and as you understand it. What exactly is it that you spend your time doing? Yeah, it's a question I, I get a lot because I think no one knows what chief of staff does. I've also come to learn that while the role is very different, the specifics of the role are very different, I do think that there are actually some general outlines of it that are the same no matter where it is. My company got me a shirt as a little present, and it defines a chief of staff as somebody you didn't know that you needed to do all the things you didn't know needed to be done. <laughs> and yep. I actually quite like that definition. I do actually think that maybe a really good way to think about it is, is you are kind of a company's API. You know, you are the, the, the person within the company that should be making everything click together. And there was a great article written on Medium by somebody who served as a, as a chief of staff in a few major tech companies. And he describes it as there are several concentric circles to the job. And the innermost circle is that of working with the principal. And when you're working with the principal, your job is to leverage them up 
And so whatever that actually looks like, it might be different in different places. I can talk about what it's like for me, but your job is to leverage up your principle. The next concentric circle, so once you get really good at that, you can kind of expand out a little bit, is your leadership team. And your job with the leadership team is starts being a little bit more about going back and forth between different business units, but also tying that back to the broader vision uh, of where the company needs to be heading. Um, and there's a certain set of skills and functions that you need to do well in order to do that piece of the job well. And then the outermost concentric circle is the organization as a whole. And so a really good chief of staff, I think, slowly finds a way to expand out until they are serving all three of those circles. But it actually begins with the principle and, and the orientation towards the principle. Practically speaking, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I, I always start with the simplest pieces of this. And so I just had spent a lot of time with our CEO, who is my principal in this case, uh, Hans, and had to really learn about him and how he works and what are his strengths and weaknesses and where are there places where he is spending time that he should not be spending time? Where are the places where when he spends time there, he gets a, a, a thousand X return on his time? And I see my job as being slowly finding a way to shift as much of his time into the highest return categories for the firm as possible mm. and doing whatever is necessary to get the lower return categories out of his way, out of his mind. You know, There's a few things that you need to do to do that kind of thing well. And, and I think it's you know, one, you help them kind of clarify their vision, make sure that you really understand what their vision is and that you're bought into that. You know, two, you give wise counsel, you know, you try to anyways, like I will privately tell him 100% honest truth, 100% of the time. And, I, and I've told him that, but like, that's something he should expect from me. And he appreciates that because sometimes it, not necessarily the IP, but sometimes executives get to a point where people stop telling him the truth because mm. they're too afraid to, you know? And I found that at least in my experience, every executive I've ever told the truth to has always been really appreciative of it. And then third, though, is like whether, you know, they take your suggestions or not, your job is then to get it done. My job is to get it done. And so that that involves taking responsibility, you know, and as a chief of staff, one of the hard things is that there's very little that I actually is mine to own, right? A lot of it is about making sure that all the other things that need to get done are getting done and being harmonized and orchestrated to get to the outcome that we need as a firm, because I can kind of see across it, whereas everybody else is just working on their piece, <laughs> And so you have to be willing to get in, though, and, and get your hands dirty and do 70% of a bunch of different things and really understand where people are and where they're coming from. And so there's this kind of emotional intelligence to that as well, where you're both getting into it with people so you can appreciate where they are and what they're working on and why they're doing it the way they are. And you're zooming back out and tying it towards that, that bigger vision. And so those are some of the skills that you need to, to bring to the table, I think, to do the job well. What do you feel has been the hardest Thing about growing into that role? So one of my good qualities is that I'm a responsibility taker. So you'll never hear me say, that's not my problem, or that was somebody else's fault, right? I, I, I don't really have that mentality. I feel responsible for everything. And so, you know, I've told, um, this is a trait that I share, unfortunately, I share with my CEO, because I think it can be a bit of a weakness, but I actually just feel personally responsible for how everything turns out all the time. Yeah. And so the downside of that is your, as anybody with half a brain can probably tell when I say that sentence is that it makes it very, very difficult to prioritize and triage mm -hmm. and to let the things go that do not boil up to the top. And so just to give an example, you know, if the alignment on the slides 
is wrong, should I be in there making the alignment right, you know, or not? And and I think that it's it's difficult when you're when you have that mentality to learn how to let those things go. But a lot of people, it's like the silly thing that people do in interviews where they say that their greatest weakness is that they're like too strong or whatever. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of people characterize that obsession with getting everything right as being something that they should be proud of. And I actually think it's a something that shows a real lack of maturity, you know? Um, And so it's an area where I've really had to mature a lot is have the maturity to be able to say, I am not going to do or work on X or Y or Z, or I'm going to build up the team or the person or the system or the process that can deal with that challenge, but it's not going to be something that I'm going to do myself. And for too long, I think I just had too much ego around that. And I thought I was capable of doing everything. And so I would, tr- I would try to, I think that's, a, I think that's actually a problem. Let me ask a question that gets under the surface of a word that you used that I think is a really smart way to characterize the kind of work that you do. I've heard it a lot in my coaching training, uh, because as coach, often a lot of my role is to help triage a situation as chief of staff a lot of problems roll up to you and your job is to hold the shield up and defend the CEO from them in some ways, which means that either you have to fix it or you have to figure out who's going to fix it or if it's a real problem at all, a la orientation or alignment of a, of a PowerPoint deck. But teach me a bit about the work that you've been learning and the maturity that you've been experiencing around triage and prioritization. And if you would use as at least one example, the way that you've learned to let go of some of the work that would otherwise befall you. Yeah, that's that's a good framing of it, Nico, I think, actually. One really helpful tool is to not overwork. So if you are working 60, more than 60 hours a week, and you think that you're good at your job, you're probably not very good at your job. It's, it's just an opinion that I have. I might be wrong and I will let some investment bankers off the hook who might might actually have to legitimately work 60 to 80 hours to just do their job. But for a lot of people, I think learning how to be more efficient with their time is something that they just they they subsidize that by working more instead of being more efficient. And so for me, I, I have used, I have a forcing mechanism for that. I have a family now. I've got three little kids uh, who are under five years old. And two gigantic dogs, and you know, and I want to spend time with them and with my awesome wife. And so I could theoretically work 100% of the time. You know, my my job is a job that is like a gas that will expand to fill the size of the container that you give it. Uh huh. But I I've forced by a forcing mechanism in place. I sit down with my dinner, my family to have dinner every night. At what time? At around six or six thirty, and I can count on two hands the number of times I've missed that in the last nine months because of work. And usually that's because of calls that are in different time zones, which I don't really count as being a, as, a, as something I would have any control over. And so I think part of the art of triage is not to sit down and try to figure out how to categorize everything you do. It's actually just to set up some boundaries that you are forced to, to operate within and then work on it from there. So for me, you know, that I, I go into my calendar every week, just as an example, and I color code everything in my calendar based on its priority. And so I have, if you look at my calendar, there's a, a rainbow of colors there. And that lets me know as I'm going through the day or through a week, 
if decisions have to be made quickly about where things get dropped or moved, yeah. I don't have to sit there and analyze every single thing. I uh-huh. have a color and I say, this is purple, so it's gone, you know? And I, and I work through things, through things like that. How do you manage phone calls? Because you have a kind of job similar to mine where I could theoretically be on the phone from eight in the morning till eight at night, 15 minutes all day long. Uh, I was doing poorly at this a few months ago, six months ago or so. I've had to, I've had to change my approach towards it for sure. I was spending over 70% of my week on the phone, mm-hmm. which is not workable. So the things I've changed is I've, I've got deep work blocks on my calendar now that are relatively speaking are hard and fast. I mean, you know, the, the folks, there are a limited number of people who can over, override those blocks, but they are pretty firm. How much of a percentage of your week do you block off for deep work? And how long is that block? So I'm currently trying to do three, three-hour blocks. And, and the block should be three, three hours long. So very Cal Newport of you. That's very good. It's, 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 it's important. And <laughs> taught, that I've time taught, blocking I've... becomes a superpower. And, it'll, and it really has, it will yield dividends in your life. Yeah, I do feel like I've taught Cal a lot over the years. So that's, that's, good. That's, that's good to hear. But the problem that I have, I mean, is a lot of it is building around my own weaknesses. I, mm. I'm not somebody who is able to focus uh, very easily. So I really need to create time to focus or else I'm not capable of doing it. You know, I also have a terrible memory. And so if I don't have everything structured very highly, I will just forget to do things. And so I, I really need my time kind of blocked out and managed that way. The other rule that I'm really trying to put into place and I'm slowly getting there is that I don't spend more than 50% of a day on calls. So that's another good rule. I think that putting it in place, it, it allows me to say, can we do this tomorrow? Right. Or can we do this next Thursday? Um, Because I look at that day and I can kind of see like, you know what, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at four hours. Right. How do you know? Do you color code calls? Yeah. So I'll call all calls are a specific color. Everything on my calendar has a color. That's genius. I want you to share that color code matrix with me. I'm really, really curious because what you may not know is that a lot of what you're sharing, uh, and selfishly, this is why I do the podcast, a lot of what you're sharing, I already know are, we share similar weaknesses. The the whole thing about uh, memory and focus, I I empathize with you, but I've never taken it to the detail of color coding a, a call. A lot of times- my calendar looks like a brick wall and my team often wonders what of these are essential, what of these are not, which are calls. My wife, forget about it. She's like, I don't use your calendar. Your calendar yeah. confuses me. Yeah. The, the other rule I put in place, and this one's a lot harder for me mm-hmm. because of all the things I've mentioned so far is that I try not to do more than two informational calls a week. Mm-hmm. So I, I get, uh, I feel lucky to get a lot of inbound interest in EIP and job searching and then things like that. And, um, and because I want to actually give those people my energy, I mm. actually have to do not necessarily fewer, but I have to space them out. I mean, if I, if I had a period where I, you know, I had like five people in a week where I did these informational calls and I did zero for all five after that phone call. You know, and I actually just, I didn't feel good about that. And so what I've tried to start doing is if I'm going to take the call, just make sure that I, I have the corresponding amount of time afterwards to actually do something to help them. And so if that means get their resume, think about where it should go, 
send it to those five people. Do, do whatever the things I need to do after the call are to actually help them because otherwise I shouldn't really bother taking their phone call at all. And that just means that I just need to do two a week or less because I, when I'm being honest with myself, I mean, I've got the, the 20 minutes for our call and then I've got the 10 minutes after twice a week. And that's, that's kind of it. And may, maybe my life won't always be that way, but that's yeah. unfortunately how it is right now. For the particularly savvy and thoughtful here who are recognizing that we're now probably nearing 60 minutes of tape, uh, probably now maybe 70. And you're thinking, how in the hell are Nico and Adam recording this and actually following any of these rules? It's presently 1045 p.m. on a Saturday. So these are the sacrifices we make to bring you these uh, deep insights. And I, I love this. I'm learning. I'm learning as we are going. Any others that you have maybe written down or that are sitting under the surface you want to make sure you get to before I move along? Weekly prioritization lists are key. Writing it out every week, no matter what, sending it to someone else, you know, is also, I think, quite important, not just having it in your own head. I send mine to my boss. I'm very transparent about it. Here's the stuff I'm working on. Mm. But I just, for him, I, I just group it into two categories. I have priorities you need to know about and priorities you don't need to know about. Mm-hmm. But I tell them to him anyways, because it actually really helps if he ever takes, there's times where he takes that extra five minutes to read through my very long list. Yeah. And he says, no, no, don't bother with this. Don't bother with that. That's, that's not a good use of your time. And, and I, I'm really grateful to have somebody in my life who's willing to do that as well for me and say, like, you're not, you're not prioritizing correctly. You're not yeah. making good use of your time. And so it is important though. sometimes when we get in our own world of organizing tools and we've got our priority list and we've got our long to-do list, the thing that's missing is someone else's perspective. And we're mm-hmm. just in our own little echo chamber of note-taking. And yeah. I think just finding a way to puncture that heuristic bubble by letting someone else into how you're prioritizing is really key, whether that's your boss or somebody else. Have you built a cadence with him that like now at 8.30 on Monday morning, he expects that or where's that fit in the overall? Yeah, it usually goes out sometime Monday. Um, okay. I, I, I don't have a specific time that I get it out there, but I really try on Monday mornings before I do anything else to sit. I, I use Rome research now to, to kind of do this, but I build out just all the things that I'm working on and I go back over the previous week, see if there's anything I need to roll over into the week that's ahead. And so sometime by the end of the day, Monday, I've got, a, I've got that stuff nailed down. What did you say you use? I use Rome research or something like that? Yeah, it's this, it's this note-taking tool called Rome Research, which uh, I've definitely gotten super into. Speaking of Shale, so Shale was the one who introduced me to this. And it's really neat. It, it, has, it allows you to kind of link your ideas so you can backlink them and link them all together. And then you can pull out a graph and see all of your ideas connected to each other. And it's totally fascinating. It's, it works really well. You should test it out because it works really well for people who think the way that we do. This is RomeResearch.com. That is so geeky, fantastic. Like how does someone at the level of Shale or Adam organize their thought and extrapolate and connect ideas? Because Shale is fantastic at this, right? He's like well-regarded in our industry for being able to connect dots and being able to think like higher order thinking than most people are capable of. I've never heard of this tool, R-O-A-M-Research.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm going to have to dig in now. That is really, really cool. So on Monday, you'll sit down in this Rome Research tool and, and take your notes. And that's where, the, the, where this list lives. Yeah. And then I, you know, I, I try to hold myself accountable as a big part of this. So I, I tag things in the list as rollover. 
So mm. if something didn't get done last week and it's rolling over into this week, it winds up at the top of my list, no matter how important it is, because it's just an accountability tool for myself that, you know, to not try to say I'm going to do more than I'm actually going to do, because then it winds up at the top of my list the following week. And so that forces me to get better and better at prioritizing. Because if I put something that's not important on there and therefore it doesn't get done, then it winds up at the top of my list the following week and it throws my prioritization all out of whack. So it's another just good little trick to keep myself on target when it comes to setting my priorities. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag. Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Hey there, commercial solar warriors. If you listen to this show, then by now you're very familiar that Extensible Energy's DemandX load flexibility software helps close more deals and faster by shifting to lower time of use rates and saving your customers 30% annual demand charges, all at a tenth of the cost of battery-based solutions. But did you know that Extensible also has a new solar partner loyalty incentive program that rewards your sales team with a generous sales bonus? Well, for now, until the end of the year, when you complete just three successful DemandX installs, your sales team member will get a $2,500 check or vacation voucher for when we all do get to travel again. This program also applies to your past customers who already have solar and could benefit from DemandX extra savings. Just contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast to become a DemandX reseller and get all the program details and benefits for yourself. Again, that's extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Have you been searching for that perfect rule that gets you into clean energy or maybe transitions your career to the next level? Might I invite you to check out LightSource BP? That's right, the global company focused on solar energy and low carbon economies backed by one of the largest energy companies in the world from strategy around the world to action locally you can be inspired and be the change by joining lightsource bp by choosing a career at lightsource bp you will join a team that truly cares about creating a more sustainable future for our world through safe and meaningful low carbon energy projects learn more and find out what career awaits you at lightsourcebp.com forward slash careers. I'd love to hear, and I feel like I'm surprised that I haven't seen already this happen in your life. If it has, please link to it. But what would your TED talk be about? Hmm. I think the thing I'm the most interested in and where I feel like I would be able to bring the most unique perspective is about how people fit into systems and specifically the systems that need to change in the energy transition. Mm. So on almost every level, I'm kind of interested in that question. I'm interested in how do you get more people into the industry? Once they're here, what do they need to do? I'm just really fascinated by and a little horrified by, but fascinated by how complicated of a problem climate change is 
just given the number of stakeholder groups and the complexity of it at every level, you know, from like the international level down to just the, you know, the individual company level and down to the personal level. And so I think that it would be really interesting to sit down and try to tie all those thoughts together about about people and about systems and about what is needed to really create change on a problem like climate change. That's the one that comes to mind. I love that. It dovetails so nicely with the next question. I actually am moving two questions around, but this is like the next question I have here for you, which is any advice for those people who we need to get into the industry, folks that are themselves thinking, why am I still in oil and gas? Or why am I helping make an algorithm to get people to like cat videos? Like, mm-hmm. what, what advice specifically do you have for folks that should find their way into our industry or perhaps are now trying to get wrapped their head around it? Yeah. Well, my first message is we want you here. We really want you here. I do a lot of our work on talent at EIP. So when people are interested in working at EIP or at our portfolio companies, I'm, I'm often the phone call that, that people make. And one of the things that our portfolio companies are always looking for is, you know, is obviously the best talent, but it's increasingly becoming talent from outside of the energy world, right? Like we're trying to grow our company. We're trying to do an amazing job marketing. Who's just the best marketing person, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about who's the best energy marketing person. Who's the best marketing person? Who's the best consumer products person? Who's the best graphic designer? You know, nobody is putting dash energy next to these things anymore because of the fact that our industry has actually gotten relatively mature. And these are companies who actually just need the best in class. And so my suggestion is whatever you are good at, I promise you, you can find a way to do your job in the energy industry. Yes. I, I have a very difficult time imagining a job that where we would not welcome you to do it for us instead, you know, kind of come over to the light side on this one for sure. And the cool thing about it is, is that you wind up then meeting other people who are both amazing at their jobs and really passionate about what they're doing. And that passion piece is often missing in other industries. Uh, although it definitely lives within people who are really passionate about what they do. So find a way to marry those. Yeah, this is such a cool job search hack. Also, by the way, if you're paying attention, Adam works at a venture fund for all intents and purposes. And there are hundreds of venture funds. And I find so many people will just dial Arcadia as an example. They're like, oh, Arcadia, this sounds really interesting. Community solar software. I'd like to work at Arcadia. And the side door is actually to have Arcadia get your resume from EIP. Like that's a, that's a guaranteed conversation. If you could figure out how to get into the fund and find someone in the fund who would recommend you to a portfolio company, like that's a done deal. And you might not get the job, but you'll be recognized. And yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah. I always try to think of how do you go from the top, right? Like I, one of my sales hacks is, I'll find a way to get into the CEO's office, even if I know the CEO has very little insight uh, into like how the procurement process is handled, right? This is my Trina days and, and also tracker sales days. But I'd go to the person at the very top because if you can get five minutes at a time, the only thing you say is, hey, I know you're super busy and you probably have somebody handling this. Would it be okay if you just like tell me who that person is? And can I let them know that you recommended that I chat with them? And that has opened so many doors for me because the person realizes like, oh my gosh, I just got off the hook. Like, I don't have to be on this phone call right now. And they'll say, yeah, it's Bob. And all I have to do is find out how to get in touch with Bob. And then I say, Jeff said that I should talk to you. And that email always gets answered 100%. Yeah, yeah. that's a great that's a great pathway for sure. I mean, yeah. I think 
And, and, you know, and I think people would be very surprised at how often cold emails or cold outreach is responded to. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's something that I would also highly recommend. I mean, I try to answer every email that I get. Might not happen right away, but I, I really try to answer every single email I get. And I know a lot of people who it's the exact same. And also then uh, if you don't get an answer right away and there's somebody who's, you know, receives a thousand emails a week and then try to email them at a weird time when they're probably just looking at their phone and they so won't good. have a, a million other emails coming in. Because yeah, that also is... happens to me. There's, there's just these times where people email me who they might've been put into that bucket of like, okay, I'll get back to them next week, but they get an answer within two minutes because it's at, you know, 7 p.m. on a, well, 7 p.m. is a bad example, probably 8 p.m. on a Sunday. Yeah. The way I hack that process is that even in Gmail now, you can schedule an email to go out. What happens is you get this idea at 4.30 in the afternoon and you're like, oh, I want to email this person. Okay, great. Email them and hit schedule send and set it for 7.30 a.m. the next day so that it's at the top of their inbox as soon as they like open their inbox. And it blows my mind how few people actually take that advice or similarly, we'll set it to go at 8 p.m. and then set a reminder for yourself at 7 a.m. the next morning to just like Mm -hmm. ping them again. Just like bubble it to the top because there are very few people who are just ignoring you. They just have hundreds of emails. Like I have hundreds of emails. Anyway, I could talk about this all day long and my coaching clients know it. Uh, We talk about a lot of uh, of these kinds of things. I help their sales teams um, and it's, it's always a lot of fun. Hey, I want to know when you think of successful, what or who comes to mind? Well, the first name that comes to mind, my hero is Marcelo Bielsa, who is the coach of Leeds United, which <laughs> anybody who's, who's unfortunately stumbled into my orbit knows <laughs> that I'm a long-suffering, diehard Leeds United fan. Yep. And so... They'll anybody who's following me on Twitter will just be enjoying casually tweet after tweet about, you know, new FERC orders and then have to put up with a stream of tweets about Leeds United. Anyways, Marcelo Bielsa is the head coach uh, of Leeds United, and uh, he's an incredible human being. Um, and what's interesting about him is that he's highly regarded as one of the best coaches in the entire world by all of the best coaches in the entire world. So he is, he's really well known. However, he is not one anywhere near as many trophies as anywhere near the top, you know, five, 10, 15 top coaches in the world. And so there's an interesting situation where, although he's not won all these trophies, he is regarded as one of the absolute best. Mm-hmm. And I like that as a, as a good proxy for success because the success isn't so much about the trophy. It's about all the other things that he does that make him such an incredible coach. You know, I could probably talk about him for an hour, but a few of the things that stand out are, you know, one, he inherited this team who was finishing in the middle of the table every year. And within two seasons, he made them champions. So he took those people and he got the absolute best out of them and not just the best out of them, but made them some of the best players in their positions in the entire league. And that's a big difference between doing that and just buying a bunch of really amazing players and making them work, right? Like he actually genuinely coached them and worked with them. He has this unbelievable attention to detail. So he found that the way that the cars were coming into the parking lot was following this really circuitous path. And so he went in and made them change the way that cars drive in and out of the parking lot at the training ground because it was inefficient. And he said it was wasting his players time and it was causing them confusion when they 
first thing when they show up in the morning and I don't want them to have that confusion. So he has that kind of uh, fixation on things like that. And the last thing is that his, one of his first weeks as coach, he, um, he made everybody go out and pick up trash for the amount of time it takes for an average person to save up enough money to buy a ticket to one of the matches. And so there's these multi-million dollar players out there picking up trash for several hours with a person they basically have never met before. And at the end, he said, you know, like, you need to really appreciate how hard people have to work to come out and see you and spend time with you. And so he's somebody who just like, he gets the absolute best out of the people he has. He has this unbelievable attention to detail and he has this deep kind of care and focus for uh, what really matters, which is uh, sometimes gets forgotten in these things, but it's like, it's the fans and it's their experience and their entertainment. And he keeps them really focused on that. So anyways, it was a long answer to that question, but he's my absolute it. hero. I love it. This is one of the things I didn't know about you. And I didn't know about Marcelo Bielsa. I'm reading as you're, as you're uh, talking about him reading. And I remember uh, that he was a coach at Atletico Bilbao. I love the fact that, that you have this, I'll call it hobby. And a lot of folks at your level in the game wouldn't necessarily like take time for a hobby in a way that you would be able to tweet about it. So for me, it just fascinates me that you are able to sort of squeeze that into the margins. Uh, won't comment to where that fits and what color on your calendar or, or your room research prioritization list, but it is fascinating. And I think it was one of the most intriguing forays away from renewable energy that this podcast has ever taken. So thank you for introducing me to Marcelo Bielsa. It's yellow on my calendar, Nika, which is high priority. <laughs> I love it, of course. <laughs> and the people, the people know me well enough. My, when we, you know, my, um, our CEO will, will text me congratulations when we win games. So people, oh, that's know, awesome. people know how important it is that's in so my good. life, which is funny. What do you believe is the next big problem to solving clean energy? I think it's the last 20%. How do you decarbonize the last 20%? I, I am so uninterested in debates about the first 80% anymore. Mm-hmm. It used to be that that, would, that would, was what took all of our time, right? And it just, I could not care less about that conversation anymore. It seems a very easy answer to me. It is solar, storage, wind. You can make it, you can really make it happen. You really genuinely can. How do you get to that last 20%? It's interesting because it just, it makes, it's a question that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know what the right answers to that are. It brings in topics that many of us in the industry have had a really hard time grappling with and frankly, have been really dismissive of in the past. Like, is it carbon capture? Should we start looking more at small modular nuclear reactors again? You know, uh, do we need to do way more geothermal or, or hydropower than we've ever done before? Is it going to be long duration energy storage or is it actually just possible to do it all with, you know, solar and storage and wind? And, and I think no matter which of those, which of those categories you pick or which of those ideas you have, they're just, it's not as much of a slam dunk to me as the first 80%. And so I think getting people who can really figure that out from a technological perspective, that's a big part of it. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's the one that I would pick. I want to introduce a new segment that I'm calling this or that. And the theme generally is what will have the greatest impact on climate and energy over the next 12 to 18 months. Okay. All right. So we'll get warmed up with a little bit of a softball here since uh, EIP, I think has a position on this hardware or software. Hardware. 
Hardware, I didn't see that coming. All right. Number two, corporate commitments or government policy? Corporate commitments. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Number three, I feel like you have a horse in the race here as well, Tesla or Rivian? I want a Rivian personally. And Tesla, Tesla's going to have the bigger impact. <laughs> We're exactly aligned on that. I'm, I'm absolutely sure that Tesla will have a bigger impact. Um, but personally, I'm going Rivian. Uh, all right, cool. I want to circle back. I'm intrigued by hardware, but I, I would love to hear your musings on the, the age of the mega corporation and how, where does it get juxtaposed how, the decisions corporates make, which have global impact, and the decisions that governments make, like China or the United States, and the global impact. Let's dive in. Well, one point, a bit of a negative point, but is that I'm not that confident in governments taking action. Hmm. Uh, and government action is also not super sticky. So it, it kind of depends on who's in power at any given time. We learned that the hard way with the mm-hmm. most recent administration. And it's been something, you know, in the environmental community that we've been whiplashed on with every president cycling in and out uh, for years and years. So it's nothing new there. But I'm just not that confident that governments are going to be able to actually take any action in time. So that makes it a little easier to say corporate commitments will save the day. Mm. However, I, I just also think that people don't always appreciate the, so while there's a the commonly cited stat around the fact that, you know, the leading corporations amount for some super high percentage of emissions. And so, um, which I is very true, right? They're like, without those actors changing the game, they won't be able to, we won't mm-hmm. be able to solve the climate challenge. It doesn't, what you do individually or personally might not, doesn't matter at all. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what those big corporations do, the top hundred corporations. However, um, when they do decide to do something, it really moves the needle. And I think it actually does have staying power. You know, no CEO is going to cycle in at Google and say, never mind. We're yeah. not going to do that anymore. <laughs> so that's just never going to happen. And they have these wide-reaching impacts on their supply chains, which go into every country. So uh, I, I just think that those commitments will ultimately wind up really moving the ball forward on climate. I also think that, fortunately, they're really competitive with each other. And so we saw a big announcement from Walmart, uh, You know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon have all made really big commitments. Google's doing some really interesting stuff now around clean energy 24-7. So mm-hmm. they've kind of been phasing in this idea. Uh, and so a lot of them are really pushing the envelope and pushing the boundaries. And I think, you know, the last thing I'll say is that because I fundamentally believe in growth, you are going to need corporations who are making commitments like that while they grow or else we're in a lot of trouble. So it can't just be, you know, a policy of reduce, at, you know, X number of megatons of carbon from the atmosphere. It really has to be Google saying, look, no matter how big we get, we will be 0% carbon. You know, that, yeah. that actually really does matter quite a lot. And we're seeing a lot of our utilities also getting on board, which we're, we're super proud of at EIP, to see a lot of our partners really stepping up and, and making those commitments as well, because it, it matters. I think this would make an absolutely riveting roundtable discussion, because there's a lot that could be said uh, for n- not necessarily U.S. policy, but certainly China policy and at an individual country, let alone regional level, China is utterly demolishing the rest of the world on every single level of, of capacity around energy storage and solar and wind, uh, all renewables, uh, and, and the velocity, like the velocity that they're adapting to climate change and rolling out electrified fleets 
I wonder in that roundtable if we would still circle back that it ultimately is corporate policy that's driving it versus government policy. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, I think that there's a lot of government policy in China designed to support the the corporate interests, right? Yeah. And China is probably the one here that's going to prove me wrong. I mean, the the truth is if they actually keep keep some of the commitments they've just made, that will be the biggest single driver for emissions. That's right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for entertaining my latest foray into a new segment, this or that. That was fun. I'd like to know any interesting books on your nightstand these days? I have not been reading much nonfiction. So I think last time we talked, I had some really good nonfiction recommendations. Uh, No, I've been going back to my roots a little bit. I really like, there's a book called The Idiot, uh, which is uh, one of Dostoevsky's books. And mm. uh, and it's kind of like my comfort book. It's the one that I settle back into, which I've read a, a bunch of times and I love it. And I've been in a place lately where I just need to kind of settle into what I'm reading uh, more so than, than trying some new stuff. That's been my big book I'm in the middle of right now again. I didn't grow up reading a lot of fiction and so I don't have a fantasy series or like you, uh, this book uh, by Dostoevsky or any other that matter that I've read multiple times. Uh, but I have heard on countless podcasts and as well with countless friends, I see folks posting uh, on social media a lot lately about the books that they are, that are nourishing them. And, and almost without fail, it is somebody referring to, I have loved this since my youth. And it's the 17th time I've read it. And I I find that the pandemic has brought that out in folks, this retreat to the security that, I don't know, the security that we uh, found in uh, in a series, uh, Once Upon a Time, or in a book, Once Upon a Time. And I think it's really interesting sociological statement about where we're all at. I think that's, I think that's really right. Yeah, I think that's really right. I, you know, because early on in the pandemic, I, I was still reading all of my post-apocalyptic fiction, which I love yeah. and my super depressing books. And I, I read the last, the last <laughs> I read one really depressing book and I was, I just <laughs> was like, I actually don't think I can handle this anymore. I'm going to need to take a break from this uh, for a little while, I think. Yeah. Well, brother, there are, I'm sure many, many hours of conversation we could have. It is getting late and I know that we've pushed the bounds of what folks are going to be willing to accept in one. Maybe we've broken this now into two episodes. Where can folks uh, find you? You mentioned Twitter. How can they get to know more about you? Yeah, Adam underscore S underscore James on Twitter. I'm definitely on there. You can hear more about energy and Marcelo Bielsa uh, regularly (laughs) on there. Uh, I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can always find me there. And uh, my email is james at energyimpactpartners.com. So you can also always reach me at my email. All right, Nico. So you've now asked me 300 questions to mark the 300 anniversary uh, episode here. I have a question for you, if that's okay, which is when I come back for episode 1000, what do you want to be able to say about Suncast? Well, I want to say in episode 1000 that it's not your fourth return to the show, but probably your maybe eighth or 10th. and by episode 1000 of Suncast, let's see, we will have been at this at least for more years, I would speculate. And that only if I increase the velocity. By that time, not only Suncast, but I expect 
a cadre of, is that the right word, a cadre of podcasts uh, will have birthed from what we originated in 2015. We're currently working silently in the night and in the background on, uh, on a Spanish language podcast. Several people know that. And we've got a handful of folks who've asked us to partner with them to bring more like this to, to the world. Uh, if that's you and you have an idea and you want to be involved in Suncast and other iterations of Suncast, you should definitely reach out. But the Suncast network of podcasts, by the time this work of art is at a thousand episodes, will be fully baked and will be influencing and giving insight and guiding the energy transition I expect it will be sometime after 2025 and we will be in the throes of addressing critical climate change issues. So by episode 1000, I hope that I'm talking about uh, other folks within Suncast Media and our Suncast Network that are bringing folks like you on about electric mobility and vertical farming and all other ways that we can help to increase sustainability and mitigate climate change and preserve a better planet for our children. Amazing. Well, thanks for that. That was fun. I think we'll put a pin in this one and call it done. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, it was, uh, as always, it was, it was great. It was great. Adam James is Chief of Staff for Energy Impact Partners. You can learn more about Energy Impact Partners and their amazing team at energyimpactpartners.com. You can learn more about the Clean Energy Leadership Institute that Adam co-founded at cleanenergyleaders.org. And of course, if you go to mysuncast.com, you'll get all the goods and deets on how you can connect with Adam and myself. And we are so ever grateful that you've endured to the end. I'm sure you've learned something. Thank you so very much. All right, all right, Solar Warrior. I have loved so much this epic of an interview with Adam. And I'm going to bet that by now, you are at the point where you really just want to reach out to Adam. So why don't you go to mysuncast.com and check out the resources page for this episode. I know that you're eager to keep learning. That's where you'll find the book recommendations, the resources, blog links, and so much more, including how to find Adam on Twitter or LinkedIn. Head over to mysuncast.com, click on the Episodes tab. You can also scroll to the very bottom, for those of you who are unaware, and click on Search. You can search for just about anything. You can find out all the episodes that Adam was in. You can find out all the episodes anybody that was a guest <laughs> is in. And uh, I hope that while you're at mysuncast.com, you'll check out our events. You'll, you can go to forward slash SPI 2020, and you can learn more about how we're involved in SPI. This year's virtual micro-conferences that span seven weeks culminating in the virtual exposition hall on October 22nd and 23rd. Hope you'll join us there as well. Of course, next week we'll have another Tactical Tuesday, you guessed it, on Tuesday. And one of these long-form interviews bringing you deep insight, practical tools, tips, and advice from industry leaders just like Adam. I hope that you'll tune in. Remember, you are what you listen to. And I'm so grateful that you have listened to now more than 300 of these Suncast episodes. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>